God, consider the scriptures. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you might grant us insight, that you might teach us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we are continuing this morning with our study through the book of Acts. Uh, Today we are looking at Acts chapter 14, verses 21 to 28. These verses actually close out a section that began at at the beginning of Acts 13. In that chapter, we see that the church in Antioch of Syria sent out Paul and Barnabas to be missionaries and church planters in the Roman Empire. They began by going to the island of Cyprus, uh, Barnabas' homeland. From there they sailed north, uh, modern-day Turkey. It was then known as Pamphylia. They ended up going specifically to the city of Pisidian Antioch. And as they did in Cyprus, they began by going to the local synagogue first. Well, in Acts 13, verses 13 to 41, Luke really gives us our most extensive examples of one of Paul's sermons. And this sermon was especially focused on those who were in the synagogue, so there were those who were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. So he referred to the law and the prophets often and spoke of how Jesus Christ fulfilled the prophecies of the Messiah that was to come. He also spoke of how the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem led the resistance against Jesus and ultimately handed him over to Pilate to be crucified. And after that, of course, just like the scriptures prophesied, and Paul points this out, he rose again from the dead. Paul also made it very clear that it was only by faith in Christ that a person could be forgiven of sin and made right with God. Paul warned them of the dangers of unbelief, but the leaders of the synagogue there in Pisidian Antioch led a persecution against them and ultimately drove Paul and Barnabas out of the city. From there, they went to Iconium. Once again, they begin in the synagogue, and a large number of both Jews and Gentiles believe. But once again, the Jews organize against them with the intent to stone them to death. Paul and Barnabas hear of this plot, and so against again, they flee. They go to the next city, which is Lystra. They have a very different kind of resistance that takes place in Lystra. Through the preaching of Paul, the Lord miraculously healed a man who had been lame from birth. And instead of giving glory to the one true God, the people who saw this begin to identify Paul and Barnabas with Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes. They tried to offer a sacrifice of worship to them, and Paul and Barnabas managed to stop them and continued to point them toward the one true God. Once again, Paul and Barnabas find themselves right after that being violently attacked. Jews traveled over 100 miles from Antioch and also from Iconium, to lead the people of Lystra to stone Paul, drag him through the streets, out of the city, and leave him for dead. The Lord healed him, amazingly, and he and Barnabas go back into the city before leaving the next day. And there they go 93 miles east to the city of Derby. That's where the verses that we are considering this morning pick up. So let's look at Acts 14, 21 to 28. After they had preached the gospel to that city, the city of Derbe, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, 
strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They passed through Pisidia, came into Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attila. From there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they spent a long time with the disciples. One of the things that's a key theme in these verses is the focus on the local church. As a matter of fact, these are some of the verses that we refer to in our church membership class to help emphasize the importance uh, of church membership for Christians. But there is definitely something that comes before church membership, and that's our relationship with Jesus Christ. Those two things, however, are vitally connected. From what we read in these verses, we can see the statements on your paper that uh, a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his church go hand in hand. Commitment to Christ and to his church go hand in hand. Everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is made part of the body of Christ, the church universal. But they also are to be part of a local church. And it's also true that everyone who is a member of a local church must be someone who's put their faith in Christ. Those two things, as I said, go hand in hand. And that's quite clear from the verses that we're considering this morning. So let's look first at the fact that it's through the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that a person is brought into a relationship with Christ. A person is not a Christian because they are basically a good person. It's really appalling, although you can understand it, because we're all kind of inclined to see ourselves as being other people are bad, but we're all pretty good. But it's appalling how many people think that because they see themselves as being a good person, then they are sure that they will be in heaven when they die. I mean, God is a holy God, and we have all sinned against him in multiple ways. All we have to do is just kind of read through the Ten Commandments and honestly make some applications to our life and to see that we are not holy. You can't be a Christian by being good. You also can't be a Christian by being religious or spiritual. There are a lot of people who are attracted to spiritual things, may even go to church services on a regular basis, but just going to church does not make somebody a Christian. You're not a Christian because you're born into a Christian family. It's a great blessing to be born into a family who prays for you, who teaches you the scriptures, who is active in church, but the faith of the parents does not automatically mean that all of the children are Christian. No one is born a Christian. A Christian is one who hears and responds to the gospel. They recognize they have sinned against God. They confess their sin to the Lord and purpose to turn from their sin. They put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and commit to follow him as Lord. It's through the gospel of Jesus Christ that a person then is brought into a relationship with Christ. Well, furthermore, for those who have committed their lives to Jesus Christ, we see from Paul and Barnabas a couple examples I want to point out. One is this. The gospel needs to be lived out and shared with others. Lived out and shared. You can see that Jesus Christ was their Lord by their actions, by the actions of Paul and Barnabas. I mean, they persevered in their commitment 
to Christ even in the face of severe persecution, as we have noted already. Paul was even stoned, dragged to the city of Lystra, and they thought he was dead. But they both continue in their commitment to Christ. They continue in their concern also for the well-being of others. In verse 21, we read that they purposely returned to the three cities that had been most aggressive in their persecution. The reason they returned was to encourage those people who had put their faith in Christ in those cities. They had a genuine concern for them. They wanted to do all they could to prepare them for hard times that they knew were coming. And they did this at the risk of their own life. That's love. They also helped these Christians organize into churches. They needed that help. Paul and Barnabas did that, again, because they loved these fellow believers, and they loved these fellow believers because they loved the Lord. Then we see them returning to the church that sent them out in Antioch of Syria. This was the local church that they were members of, as we would, terms we would use. They loved the people there. They were committed to them. They wanted to share with them all the Lord had done in their ministry. These are examples, really, of how you can see Paul and Barnabas' commitment to the gospel of Christ by the way they lived their life. It informed the things that they did and things that they considered important. It was, but they also, of course, put the gospel into words. They were purposefully sharing Christ with others. Of course, they were doing mission work, so you would expect them to be verbally sharing the gospel in some fashion. And we all understand, I know, the need to be a Christian example and the way that we live. That's a challenge in itself, but I think it's even more difficult for uh, most of us to share the gospel with our words. I struggle with that as much as anybody. Uh, when there's an opening, I really enjoy sharing, but it's hard to take the initiative sometimes in the conversation. Some of you might be able to relate to that. Most of us probably have a ways to go in that. But let me also say this. If you are talking to your children, your grandchildren, about the Lord, then you're sharing your faith. And those are the most important people, really, that we should be sharing with and other opportunity we have within our family that's given there. But again, we also need to be praying about and being open to other opportunities as well. Another thing about the commitment to Christ we need to note from these verses is that all who believe the gospel are disciples. All who believe the gospel are disciples of Lord Jesus Christ all of their life. The word disciple is commonly used in Acts to speak of people who are Christians. In verse 20, we see the disciples gathering around Paul who had just been stoned out of concern. In verse 21, we see that when Paul and Barnabas preached in Derby, Derby they made many disciples. In verse 22, we, it talks about how they were working to strengthen the souls of the disciples. In verse 28, the members of the church in Antioch are described as disciples, and we're told that Paul and Barnabas spent a good deal of time with them. The word for disciple basically means one who is committed to be a learner. It reminds us that we all have a lot to learn. It reminds us that sin is not only evident in the things that we say or the way that we act, but also has just a devastating effect on our mind, our inner man, our heart. There is so much to learn. The Word of God is the revelation of truth. It's the truth that addresses the lies and falsehoods that we have been believing. It addresses the way we've been deceived that affect how we live. The Word of God speaks to us of the triune God, of our need for salvation, 
of what the Lord has done in Christ to provide that salvation. It speaks to us of the nature and character of God. It speaks to us, it speaks to us of his promises, of, his, of the warnings that he gives. It instructs us how to relate to other people. I mean, this just goes on and on of all that is in the word of God for us that we need to continue to be learners of. Every believer is a disciple, a learner. From the, that's true of the newest Christian, like in, uh, in, in verse 21. They, 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 these were new converts in Derby, and they're called disciples. And then in verse 28, those believers who had been longtime members in the church at Antioch, they're described as disciples as well. So we never come to the place where we know it all. There is always much to learn and much to apply. So these are the things, some of the things that are, in, that are involved in having a commitment to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And these truths are the basis for the second main point that we're going to consider this morning, and that's this. The local church is the context in which the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ grow and mature in their faith. The local church is that context. Just to give a little background leading up to some of the things that take place here, Jesus talked to the apostles in Matthew 16, 19 about giving the church the keys of the kingdom. He also talked about the church's responsibility to bind and to loose. Each of those illustrations are all describing the same thing, but from different angles. Keys are used to lock and unlock doors. So with keys, we let someone into a particular building. We also keep some people from entering with those keys. I believe this is a picture of the responsibility the Lord has given the local church under the authority of Jesus Christ. We're to hear a person's confession of faith in Christ. We're to see that they, they have an understanding of the gospel. We're to see that there is some evidence of a changed life. And it's on that basis that a person is baptized and brought into membership in the curse. In other words, they are understood to be disciples. Anyone, of course, can, can attend services, but only believers can actually become members. I mean, that's the keys of the kingdom in practice. But Jesus also gives the image of binding something. So not only are the believers, the disciples, brought into the church as members, they're also bound together within that church in a committed fellowship with other Christians in that particular church. So church members, membership is for those who have a commitment first to Jesus Christ, and then they ultimately have a commitment to fellow believers as well within the church. Well, we see in the book of Acts that the apostles understood what Jesus was saying. We talked about the keys and the, and the binding and loosing. There's a lot of emphasis when we get the early chapter of Acts of many being added to the church in Jerusalem. You see that from the very beginning. Their worship, their fellowship bound them together, and it's spoken of multiple times. We see later that many were added to the church in Antioch as well. And as we noted in this chapter, those people were all bound together as disciples of Christ. Now we see that as more people put their faith in Jesus Christ, more churches are organized for the disciples to meet together for worship, fellowship, and instruction. So the local church is the context in which the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ are bound together to help them grow and mature in the faith. 
as an example, we see that the ch- we see that the church is the context of Paul and Barnabas's ministry from beginning to end. Next point is this: point A, the Lord sent out the Lord sent out Paul and Barnabas to further the gospel in the Roman Empire through the church at Antioch. Reminded of this in verse 26. It says, from there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. So the context of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey was the local church. The Lord worked through the leadership of the church to make it clear that these two men were to be sent out for ministry. Well, here in verse 26, we see that we said it was the church of Antioch really as a whole as a particular bound-together flock who commended Paul and Barnabas to the grace of God for the work that God had for them. They entrusted them to the Lord as they sent them out. So it was under the authority and in the context of a local church that Paul and Barnabas were sent out as missionaries and to start more churches. We also see that the local church continued to play a fundamental role in their ministry in the cities they visited. So next... It's in the context of a local church that souls, the souls of the disciples are strengthened and helped to continue in the faith in spite of many tribulations. Verse 21-22, <coughs> after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This is like a classic understatement here in verse 21. Luke simply says, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. First, if you look at a map, you will see that it would have been a more direct route back to their home church if they had gone through Paul's hometown of Tarsus. And how cool would that be? Go Go back by his hometown on the way back to... Antioch of Syria, their home church. But that's not what they did. They took the long way around. And that's because they were so committed to these new Christians in these three cities, they knew they would need their help. Remember, it was in Lystra, because we're kind of going backwards here from where they, from where they first came. And it was in Lystra that Jews from Antioch and Iconium came and stirred up the, stirred up the Jews there to stone Paul and leave him for dead. Paul and Barnabas go back to Lystra anyway. It was in Iconium that plans were made to mistreat and stone Paul and Barnabas. They go back to Iconium anyway. It was in Pisidian Antioch that the Jews and the leading men of the city instigated such a strong persecution against Paul and Barnabas that they were forced and driven out of that district. Paul and Barnabas go back to Pisidian Antioch anyway. What was their purpose in returning to these cities that had proved to be so dangerous? They went back to strengthen the souls of the disciples in these cities and to help them continue in the faith. They taught them and helped them organize as churches, as a church in their their individual places. And it was in this context that Paul and Barnabas gave leadership and provided the structure in which to help these new believers after, they, after Paul and Barnabas would, would be gone. They were intent on strengthening or establishing them in their faith. 
So the focus, it says, was on their souls. That's the idea of uh, their minds, their heart, their inner man. They did this by further instructing them in the Scriptures. They did this by giving them the structure they needed to be able to continue the strengthening of one another's souls in the faith. Well, and Paul and Barnabas point out that this is especially important because the Scripture made it clear that it was through many trials or tribulations, pressures, that we must enter the kingdom of God. So why is that true? Well, there's at least two answers to that. First is true because God in his wisdom ordained it to be true, that we would have trials in this life. That's been ordained of God. It's also true because we live in a fallen and sinful world, therefore trials, tribulations, difficulties are going to happen. So with this being a reality, they're trying to make, make sure they're prepared for that. He speaks of this reality being connected with our entering into the kingdom of God. Well, there's generally three different ways that the kingdom of God is spoken of in the Bible. First is God's kingdom of power. That speaks of the fact that he's the king over all things. He rules by his, all his sovereign power. That's God's kingdom of power. Second is God's kingdom of grace. Sometimes the kingdom of God is referred to in that way. And that speaks of how the Lord overcomes the sinful resistance of our hearts and brings us into his kingdom. It's another way of speaking about how a person becomes a Christian or becomes a disciple. So in God's kingdom of grace, believers live with Christ as their Savior and their King. The third aspect of God's kingdom that, that comes up in the Scriptures is the kingdom of glory. This speaks of eternal life. It speaks of being fully glorified in Christ as we are conformed to his image. It speaks of delighting in the Lord for all eternity. I believe it's this third use of the kingdom of God that's being referred to here. Paul and Barnabas are giving them a reminder that they will certainly enjoy eternal blessedness in the Lord. Yes, there's going to be trials, there's going to be tribulations along the way, and that's a big deal. Paul and Barnabas' own experience is an example and evidence of that. Lots of things to endure. But one day, our salvation, the salvation of every believer, will be completed. And we will glorify and enjoy our Lord forever. So that's, part, that's a big part of what's going on that they're teaching them here. And as we've noted, Paul and Barnabas are modeling the truth that the strengthening and encouraging of our souls takes place within the local church. Quote here by Dale Johnson on your outline. It says, the work of the church is to care for souls in clear proclamation of the name and gospel of Jesus. No other entity, no other entity can accomplish the work God requires of his church by his word through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the ministry of soul care has been given by God to the local church. And Johnson points out that discipleship is really God's primary means of conforming believers to the image of God. Every aspect of the ministry of the church is intended to care for our souls in some way. Preaching and teaching the scriptures, that's intended, that's a care for the souls of, of, of believers. Fellowship together, that's, a, that's an aspect of soul care when we fellowship with one another. Corporate worship, one of the big aspects of corporate worship is soul care. 
for us, ministering to our souls and to one another's souls just as we worship together. One of the coolest things here, you know, it's one thing to sing a song by yourself. It is really different to sing it with a group of believers, isn't it? It's big time different. There's an encouragement there that we're all singing. That's part of soul care. It's worshiping together. Even church discipline is meant as a benefit to the soul of one who is strayed from the Lord. Every aspect of the church's ministry is meant to care for our souls. And the Lord has given the local church for that important work. Well, as a further elaboration of really how the church is given and, and as the context in which disciples grow and mature in the faith, we see the next point, that the Lord raises up elders and other leadership within the local church to shepherd and care for the flock. Luke further describes what Paul and Barnabas do to help these believers in verse 23. He says, When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So they didn't appoint the elders the first time they went through the cities. The reason for that is they're giving time for those who had been given leadership gifts, abilities, to become obvious as the disciples began to gather together. The Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts to all Christians. Some of those gifts are especially suited for leadership within the church. So after a number of months, when Paul and Barnabas returned, those particular men would have become obvious within the church at that point, and obvious to Paul and Barnabas as well. The word for appointed in this verse originally meant to stretch out the hand. So that may well imply some manner of involvement from the church with Paul and Barnabas on the choosing of elders. Don't know how it was done, but I'm sure that Paul and Barnabas conferred closely with the believers before setting apart those who were going to be the elders. In Hebrews 10, 17, we are told that the leaders of the local church are to keep watch over the souls of the people in their particular congregation, their particular flock. So that's a key part of Paul's concern that the souls of the disciples be strengthened. He understood this was a big part of it. In our church, we understand the responsibilities of the elders uh, to be summed up really in four statements, and that's first, that we like the elders need to know the sheep. We know something of a person's commitment to the Lord, uh, try to be aware of things they're dealing with in their life, need to know the sheep. Second, we thought the elders are called to feed the sheep. That happens through Sunday school, uh, TRI classes, uh, through preaching and worship services, fellowship groups. The sheep need to be fed. Third, the elders are called to lead the sheep. We think through purposes, goals, strategy, overall direction for the church, those kind of things. And fourth, the elders are to protect the sheep. That includes public warnings about false doctrines, false teachers. It also includes private exhortations when that's, when that's uh, uh, necessary. So overall, the elders are really under-shepherds. That's what we used to call our elders. Actually, we're under-shepherds because they illustrated this fact. But the elders are under-shepherds who serve under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the chief shepherd of the sheep. And it's important to note here in verse 14, 23, that Paul and Barnabas commend the elders 
that were appointed, says as they do that uh, in each church, to the Lord in whom they had believed. In other words, the way it's written there, what's primary is that they themselves are disciples. The elders are first and foremost disciples of Christ. He is our Lord and Savior. The elders serve the disciples in the local church on behalf of Jesus Christ, the Lord in whom they have believed. And the elders must be dependent on and accountable to the Lord himself. So the things that Paul and Barnabas do to help these new disciples are consistent with the things that Jesus Christ said about the importance of the local church. We talked about the keys and the binding and so forth. And it's just as important now as it ever has been. Finally, we see that at the conclusion of their first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas returned to the church at Antioch to share what God and his grace had accomplished through their ministry. Verses 24 to 28, it says, They passed through Pisidia, came into Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. From there, they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they spent a long time with the disciples. So Paul and Barnabas methodically worked their way back toward their home church where this whole ministry began. Their church had prayed for them, commending them to the grace of God for the work that lay ahead of them when they sent them out. And there is, it, this is not talked about, but there's no doubt in my mind that they continued to pray for them regularly while they were gone. They probably knew little or nothing of the things that were actually going on. But they would be faithful to pray. I'm sure of that. You can imagine the joy they would have when Paul and Barnabas returned. They wanted to hear all that had happened. And Paul and Barnabas were eager to share with their fellow disciples in Antioch all the things that had taken place. They are said to have reported all things that God had done with them. They see themselves as co-laborers with the Lord. And they were able to see, Paul and Barnabas were able to to see the hand of God in everything that had happened. The hard things, the delightful things, the joyful things. They were able to see the hand of God in everything that had happened, and that's how they shared it. I mean, they surely shared all the things that Luke has recorded for us uh, in chapters 13 and 14. Um, They would have spoken of all the Jews and all the Gentiles who put their faith in Jesus, uh, Jesus as the Christ. Mentions here a special focus on a a door being opened to to faith to the Gentiles. The church at Antioch was primarily a church that was full of Gentiles, so that would have been especially relevant uh, and important for them. I would imagine they probably gave names, stories of specific people who were converted. I mean, they're going to share more than what Luke told us. They would speak of the great miracles the Lord did through them and how he used those miracles. I bet they shared the names of the elders that had been appointed. And Lystra, Iconium, Pisidian Antioch, there was probably elder, may well have been elders established in Derby as well. There probably was. Sharing those names so that the church in Antioch of Syria could pray for them and pray for the churches that had been established in those towns. I would think they also would have spoken of the people who organized the opposition in each of those cities 
probably named them by name as well so they could pray for them and pray about that. I just imagine this was probably a glorious meeting as, these, as, as Paul and Barnabas are reunited with, with their church, sharing all that God had done. We also read that Paul and Barnabas, at the last verse there in the chapter, that Paul and Barnabas stayed with the disciples in Antioch for a significant amount of time. They would very likely just resume their roles as part of the leadership of the church. It's interesting to note here, many people believe that it was during this particular time of back with the church at Antioch when Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians. That would have been in 48 AD, which in itself is a further example of his commitment to the local church. The body of Christ writing a letter because much of these churches were in the region of Galatia. All this makes sense. Paul was fully committed to the Lord. Barnabas as well. And as we noted at the beginning, a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his church go hand in hand. Well, we want to thank you so much for the work of salvation that you do in our lives. Thank you for the stories that we have, that we can talk about how you got our attention, how you showed us our sin, how you made the scriptures real to us, how we, how we came to understand our need for Christ. Lord, thank you for doing that work. Thank you for taking people who, all of us, which is all of us, people who are sinful, going their own direction in life, transforming us into people who are disciples of Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for that work, that gracious work. And Lord, I want to thank you also for placing us into your church as a whole. We're all part of the body of Christ as a whole. But also thank you for placing us in particular local churches. Some of us here, the only church we've been a part of has been this in our life because of how old we are. Others have been part of multiple churches over our lifetime. But Lord, I want to thank you how you've used those churches in our life. So many things I can think back to of individuals and, and opportunities and ministries that happened in various local churches that have had such a long-term impact on my life. And we all have the same stories because that's what you do. You actually care for our souls through those local churches and through the people in there. And so thank you so much for that. We ask for your continued help in this church as we seek to see that happen uh, even more and more. If you're one who has never put your faith in Jesus Christ, of course, that's the most important thing where all this has to start. I would invite, invite you and encourage you to put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner. I realize that I do not measure up at all for what you require of me as my creator, and I'm going to give an account to you. I know that. But I also know that Jesus Christ paid the price for sinners like me, and I want to receive Jesus as my Savior. I want to commit my life to Jesus as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make it on your tear-off. or.